Christ has the authority to and will defend his church from its enemies, both inside and outside, and he will do so by pronouncing devastating judgment against them. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part five of his series titled, The Seven Churches of Revelation. We're looking at Christ's letters, individually written through the Apostle John, to seven real churches that existed in seven cities in Asia Minor during the first century. These seven churches are representative of other churches that existed in the first century, churches that had the same strengths and weaknesses. Today, Tom will begin to examine the third letter, the letter to the church in Pergamum, the church of undiscerning tolerance. And as you'll discover, the message to this church is fairly straightforward. Christ reminds his church that love for him and love for his truth demand discernment hatred of sin and error, and the faithful practice of church discipline. Is your church one that tolerates error and sin? Are you someone who does individually? Keep that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. Well, I encourage you to take uh, your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We have begun our journey through this amazing book, the last book written in our New Testament, written in the mid-90s A.D. during the reign of Domitian, John exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and there the Lord appears to him. And the Lord appears to him and begins to dictate to him the, the letter, the, the book that we call Revelation. But he begins with a series of seven letters addressed to seven real churches in seven cities in Asia Minor in the first century. At the same time, those seven churches are representative of other churches that existed in the first century, churches like them that had the same strengths, the same weaknesses, and they are equally representative of churches like them throughout church history having their strengths, having their weaknesses. And so there is so much for us to learn from these letters to the seven churches as our Lord dictates each of them to the Apostle John. Tonight we come to the third letter, the, the message to Pergamum. And Pergamum I've called the church of undiscerning tolerance. The church of undiscerning tolerance. Nothing could be more appropriate for our times, I'm afraid, than the message to this church. Let's read it together. You follow along. Revelation chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept the, 
the teaching, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the t- teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. The message of this church is fairly straightforward. It's this, Christ reminds his church that love for him and love for his truth demands discernment, hatred of sin and error, and the faithful practice of church discipline. That's what we're going to see as this letter unfolds. With each of the seven letters, we are following the same basic outline that our Lord does. And so as we begin with this church, we begin with the introduction to the letter, the command to write, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, notice that it's written to a church in a certain city, and so we need to begin by looking at the character of that city. It's the city of Pergamum. If you had traveled north from Ephesus, it would be about 100 miles, but if you had traveled north from Smyrna across the coastline about 40 miles and then turned inland toward the northeast, you would have traveled up the river valley of the Caicos River, and there 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea was the ancient city of Pergamum. Today, nearby, stands the modern Turkish city of Bergama. Its name, Pergamum, means the citadel, and that's because of how it was situated. Most of the seven cities were located at the base of a mountain or a hill down in the valley, but in the case of Pergamum, the entire city was built more than a thousand feet above the valley floor and on the top of a cone-shaped mountain. Pliny, the Roman historian, called Pergamum by far the most distinguished city in Asia. William Ramsey, the 19th century archaeologist, described the city like this, beyond all other sites in Asia Minor, it gives the traveler the impression of a royal city, the home of authority. The rocky hill on which it stands is so huge and dominates the broad plain of the Caicos River Valley proudly and boldly. Today, its ruins include an amphitheater that seated over 10,000 built into the side of the mountain with a spectacular view of the valley. The city began in ancient history but came to prominence in in its own region around 300 B.C. when it became the capital of the Attalid civilization. The Attalid civilization. It's the one that preceded the Romans. One of the kings of the Attalid civilization was a man named Eumenes. Eumenes II made this city a shining example of Greek civilization. He created a library, a library that was second only to the historic library in Alexandria, Egypt. The library in Pergamum contained over 200,000 scrolls. There's an interesting story that comes from the founding of the library. 
Ptolemy down in Egypt, where the Library of Alexandria was, heard rumors that, that Eumenes was creating this library and intended it to rival the one there. And so when he heard that, he even heard that, that he had tried to hire away the famous librarian of Alexandria, a man, a man named Aristophanes. So Ptolemy imprisoned Aristophanes, and he ended all exports of papyrus to Pergamum. Papyrus was the primary paper of the ancient world. So Pergamum had to come up with a new paper, new writing material, and it landed with parchment, that is, making um, paper from animal skins. The technology had actually existed for more than a thousand years from Egypt, but they sort of rediscovered it. And the name for that writing material, parchment, became known as pergamene. This library was so famous that Mark Antony gave it to Cleopatra, who eventually moved all 200,000 of its scrolls to Alexandria. The last Attalid king, Attalus III, bequeathed his entire kingdom to Rome in the year 133 BC. From that point forward, Pergamum became the Roman capital of a new province that Rome created called Asia. We know it as Asia Minor. And so Pergamum was the capital of this entire region. So it's not surprising that Pergamum was the first city in that region to build a temple dedicated to the worship of a living emperor. This temple was built in 29 BC to, quote, the divine Augustus and the goddess Rome. The city served as a provincial capital, and it's where the Roman proconsul resided. Now, the city also served as a center of worship for many of the Greek and Roman gods. By far, the, the greatest centers of worship in the city of Pergamum were, first of all, for Zeus. The most spectacular of the city's temples was the Temple of Zeus. It was situated on a, a jutting part of the hill over the valley, and it contained the great altar of Zeus, an altar that was 112 feet by 120 feet. This, this photo that I have doesn't do justice to the sheer size of what that temple would have been. The altar that you see pictured there was in a colonnaded court that included a podium almost 18 feet high. If you ever go to Berlin in the Berlin there, the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, you can see a famous frieze that was around the base of this altar. Inscriptions throughout Pergamum described Zeus as the Soter, the Savior. The second major temple that was there was the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius was from their Anatolian heritage, and he was the god of healing. He was represented by a serpent. And even today, the art of medicine, if you've seen the sort of insignia of medicine, the art of medicine is still represented by his staff intertwined with a serpent because of the connection of medicine to the temple of Asclepius. His temple was also one of the most famous ancient hospitals. Here, is, here are a few pictures of that temple. And this is interesting because the way you entered the temple was through this covered passageway and as you walk down the steps and into this corridor, you can see across the top there are holes in the, in the hillside, and that's so that the priests could, and there are different stories about how they treated you as you sort of entered the temple. Some said they, they shouted down positive things to encourage you. 
Others said they, they poured different things on you to sort of, uh, you know, get you moving, boiling water or, or cold water, those sorts of things. Um, so there are different stories about how this was used, but you, this is what you walk through to get into the temple itself. Now, the reason I show you this is because this temple was also one of the most famous ancient hospitals. Galen, one of the most famous doctors of the ancient world, second in fame only to Hippocrates, was born and grew up in Pergamum and studied and practiced in this temple. Now, in this temple or hospital, healing was attributed to God, the God of the temple, more than to the doctors. But the treatment consisted of a combination of medicine, psychology, and superstition. The prescription included things like exercise, massage, diet, rest, sun baths, mineral baths, herbs, and purging. Some of you are like interested in going. It doesn't exist anymore. I just want you to know that. Since the God himself was represented by a snake, non-poisonous snakes slithered all over the temple. And in fact, those who wished to be healed would lie down or in many cases sleep the night on the floor of the temple, hoping that they would be touched by one of the snakes, which represented the God, and be healed. For those who required a lengthy stay, there was music, art, theater, and even religious services. One interesting side note, since Luke, who was a physician, you remember, joined Paul on his second journey at the, at the city of Troas, not far from Pergamum, it's possible Luke was living in this area. If so, it's possible, even likely, that before he came to Christ, he practiced at this very hospital. The third kind of religion that was prominent in Pergamum was emperor worship. Pergamum was especially known for the official worship center of the entire region of Asia Minor for em emperor worship. Now, in Smyrna, Christians were in danger, you remember, on the day every year when citizens were supposed to offer their sacrifices to the emperor. Pergamum was known as the keeper of the temple of, of Caesar, so in Pergamum, a city filled with temples for the worship of the emperor, Christians were at risk every single day. Can you imagine now if you can picture the majesty of this temple, there were two others to the emperor. You were required as a citizen to worship there. You can imagine how intimidating it would have been as an individual citizen to say, no, I'm not going to, to go there. I'm not going to worship the emperor. I'm not going to say Caesar is Lord. So that's the city. That brings us to the history of the church. We've looked at the character of the city. Consider the history of the church Verse 12 says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, as true with the church in Smyrna, Acts doesn't record the founding of this church. However, it probably began during the nearly three years that Paul served in Ephesus. Acts 19.10 again says that while he was there, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So he used Ephesus as a sort of hub and center, and from there spread to these other cities. It's likely that this church was founded by the Apostle Paul during those years. That brings us then to the description of Christ in verse 12. Notice how he introduces himself. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, 
Now, as we have discovered occurs with all seven letters, Christ begins by referring to himself using one of the pictures from the vision that John saw back in chapter 1. This one is in chapter 1, verse 16. This sword here described is a large Thracian sword typically wielded with great sweeping blows. It's sharp, and notice it has cutting surfaces on both sides. It's interesting that he chose this emblem for his description of himself to the city of Pergamum, because you remember, this is where the Roman proconsul resided, and he had a sword, and his sword symbolized the authority of Rome, the power to put people to death, to let them live or to put them to death. Christ's sword here reminds his people in Pergamum that his power is greater than that of the proconsul, than any earthly ruler. He has the sharp two-edged sword. And notice, this sword here isn't described in exactly the same way it is in chapter 1. There it's described as coming out of Christ's mouth, showing that Christ doesn't fight with an actual sword, but he fights with the words of his mouth. He destroys by simply speaking, just as he created. And as we'll discover in a moment, Our Lord is speaking here of destructive judgment against the enemies of the church. Someday he'll use his words as a weapon to destroy the enemies of his people outside the church. Revelation 19, a sword comes out of his mouth to destroy his enemies at Armageddon. But here we see a sword coming out of his mouth to destroy his enemies within the church. The point is this. Christ has the authority to and will defend his church from its enemies, both inside and outside, and he will do so by pronouncing devastating judgment against them. That's the point of this sword that comes out of his mouth. Now, that's the introduction to the letter, and that brings us then to the body of the letter, the state of this church in verses 13 to 16. Now, as our Lord does with all but two churches, he begins with his assessment of the of the the assessment, I should say, of the church there in Pergamum with a commendation of the good. Notice what he says in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Our Lord knew their circumstances. I love that, don't you? He says, I understand. I understand your circumstances. He was fully aware of the city where they had to permanently make their home. That's the sense of this verb. You That's where you permanently live. That's where you permanently reside. There there weren't a lot of other options for them. And Jesus knew. He knew exactly how hard it was for them to live in the city of Pergamum, and he commends them for their faithfulness to him in such a hard place. Can I just encourage you? Our Lord knows your circumstances as well. Whatever they may be, whether they're filled with joy and comfort and relative ease, or whether you find yourself in a really hard, difficult, even dark place, the Lord knows. He knows how difficult it is in your circumstances to obey Him. And so when you are faithful to Him, when you follow Him, when you do what He's commanded, He is just as pleased as He was with this church for their faithfulness in this way. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus says here that the first century city of Pergamum was the place where Satan's throne was. That's a remarkable statement. What did he mean? 
Well, obviously the idea is that this was Satan's headquarters. It was where he exercised control, where he exercised rule in that region. But the question is, in what sense? Well, there are several possibilities. This Satan's throne reference may be a reference to that throne-like altar to Zeus I showed you there on the top of the hill. It may be that it's a reference to the worship of the serpent, you remember, that represented the God of healing that was even referred to as the Savior. It's possible Satan's throne refers to the city itself because when when you approach the city from the south, it looks on the top of that hill like a giant throne towering out above the valley. But most likely, the reference to Satan's throne being there in Pergamum, and most commentators would agree, and I think this makes the most sense, it refers to the prominence of this city as the official center of emperor worship in Asia Minor. William Mounts writes, as Rome had become the center of Satan's activity in the West, we'll see that as this letter unfolds, so Pergamum had become his throne in the East. Satan's throne most likely referred to this city as the citadel of the emperor worship cult, and our Lord knew that. He knew how hard it was to live in Pergamum. He also knew that many believers in the church had remained faithful to him. Notice verse 13 goes on to say, and in that circumstance, you hold fast my name. Literally, it's the present tense. You are holding fast my name. You are holding on to, you are remaining faithful and loyal to the name of Christ. I think that means not only metaphorically, but literally. In other words, Our Lord knew that there were many in this church who were refusing to yield to the political pressure to burn incense to the emperor and to stand there for their financial well-being or their physical well-being and say, Caesar is Lord. He says, you are holding fast my name. He adds, and did not deny my faith. He changes verb tenses here, and the verb tense here implies backward in time to a specific historical event in which they did not deny their faith in Christ. And he tells us what it was. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We know nothing about Antipas except what Christ tells us here. It's possible he was an elder or pastor in the church there in Pergamum. Tradition says that this man was roasted to death in a brazen bull during the reign of Domitian. Christ tells us that Antipas lived in the days of intense persecution, and he tells us that Antipas was faithful in the middle of that persecution and was eventually martyred for his faith. He refused in the capital of emperor worship to bow the knee and to confess Caesar as Lord. I love the way Christ refers to this man. Did you, did you notice that? He refers to Antipas there in verse 13 in exactly the same way he refers to himself. Go back to chapter 1, verse 5. This is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Antipas was faithful in his witness to Christ even to death. By the way, that's why the Greek word for witness, which originally just meant witness, it's the word from which we get our word martyr, But eventually, that word meant more than witness. It meant someone who was faithful in their witness even through death. 
and therefore it became a martyr, a witness who was faithful to death. This church, now think about this for a moment. This church had experienced the death of one of its members, likely one of its leaders, perhaps its leading teaching elder, for no crime except worshiping Jesus Christ and refusing to worship another god. And yet, it continued holding fast Jesus' name. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series titled The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.